Welcome to the study of the book of Revelation, taught by Michael Fitzgerald, senior pastor of Clifford Baptist Church. These lessons come from a Wednesday night study of the book, so the format is more of a classroom setting. Included in this Revelation series are written study notes, which can be accessed with each lesson in the series. We continue on, getting closer to the end of our study in the book of the Revelation. We are in chapter 20 tonight. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, moving toward the end of this year-long study. And, of course, we have studied this writing. This is God's Word given by the Lord through the Apostle John, and he is on the prison island of Patmos, lifted up by God on the Lord's day, and he sees an unveiling in the heavens. And I know this is repetitious, but I want to make sure that this is just common knowledge here. Three divisions in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, the unveiled picture of Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches on Asia Minor. Chapter 4 begins the prophecy of how God deals with and punishes sin and brings this world to an end and opens up the kingdom of God. Now, within this prophecy, as you know, we have studied the seven seal judgments, that scroll of ownership that God Almighty hands to His Son, Jesus, the Lamb, the only one in the universe who could touch that scroll. He earned the right and the authority to have that scroll of ownership through His death on the cross and His atonement for our sin. And as Jesus unrolls that scroll of ownership. There are seven seals, and with each breaking of the seal, as God's will is unrolled, there is a great tribulation that is poured out. But if you remember, when the seventh seal is broken, there are seven trumpet judgments as a part of the seventh seal. And as the seventh trumpet blows, then there are seven bowls or vials of wrath poured out. So these multiple tribulation that God pours upon the earth in a seven-year period, is called the Great Tribulation. And, of course, we know in our time frame, as we study this tonight, the Great Tribulation is still yet to come. We have not seen the beginnings of the Great Tribulation yet. In fact, when you and I, as God's children, see the beginnings of the Great Tribulation, we are not going to be here because I truly believe as we study God's Word and as chapter 4 of prophecy opens in Revelation, the church is raptured out of here. You and I are going to see this from a completely different vantage point than being on earth. However, as we study the Great Tribulation, that seven-year period, God is punishing sin for sure, but also I want you to bear this in mind as we study this book. This is His display of awesome power, and it is one final call to the lost, one final call to come to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Church is gone. The church has been raptured away. So the great tribulation Christians are after the church age. Uh, bear that in mind. That's going to come into play tonight when we talk about the resurrection. Now, these tribulations show the world, this is on your sheet, that everything on this earth is coming to a dead end. Nature is falling apart. We see that money is a dead end. Possessions lead to a dead end. Fame is a dead end. 
trying to be our own God, trying to set our own path is a dead end. We need to fall on our knees before the Savior for he is the only way to come to the holiness and righteousness and forgiveness and eternal home of a holy God. He is the one way that is not a dead end. Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life and his life and his way is that open door that leads to forgiven to forgiveness and to heaven. So Jesus Christ is that open gate of joy and peace and eternal life. That's on your sheet. He is that open gate to joy and peace and eternal life. Now, I'm sure that you remember in the book of Acts chapter 9 in your New Testament that God knocks Paul to his knees. At that particular point in his life, he is not a believer in the Lord Jesus. He is a very stout Jew, and he believes that truly doing the will of God is persecuting God's people through Jesus, persecuting Christians, persecuting the church, trying to rid the world of people of Christ and rid the world of the church. However, God knocks Paul to his knees. He blinds him in order to show him Jesus. So God actually knocks Paul to his knees, blinds him so that he may be able to see Jesus Christ as Savior. However, I want you to realize from that punishment, Paul becomes the greatest missionary and the greatest theologian that this world has ever known. It took God knocking Paul to his knees and blinding him as this Jew so that he could see the forgiveness of Jesus, the Son of God. So it took a negative experience in Paul's life to bring about this positive experience of being saved, being called into missions, writing the majority of the New Testament. That's God's logic as well when it comes to the great tribulation. If the punishments poured upon this earth during this seven-year period caused people to look up and to reach to Jesus and to be saved, then the temporary negatives of the great tribulation brings the eternal positive of salvation. That's on your sheet. The negative of the great tribulation brings the positive of eternal salvation. So seven years of tribulation and trial and hurt brings an eternity of forgiveness. And this prophecy tells us that millions, an uncounted number, come to Jesus during the seven years of tribulation. Now, we have studied through chapter 19. We concluded that study last week. And at this point, God has fought the battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist is defeated, and he and the false prophet are thrown into hell. And in fact, they are the very first two who break hell wide open. Hell had been uninhabited to this point, but the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into hell. So the Antichrist is gone off the world scene, but his daddy, Satan, is still around. So let's see what happens at this juncture of history as the great tribulation now has drawn to a close. The rebellious armies of the Antichrist are now destroyed. The battle of Armageddon is done and the Antichrist and the false prophet are now in hell. With that timeline, let's look at Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6. Here 
these words. And remember, in hearing these words, this is the one book of the Bible that promises us, as we hear these words, we are blessed of God. John writes, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. May God add his blessing to the reading of this precious portion of his holy word. We're going to learn two things tonight as we come to this study. First of all, we're going to learn that the day is going to come when Satan will be bound. The second thing we will learn is the day is going to come when the saints will be blessed. Satan will be bound and the saints will be blessed. Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 It says, a mighty army angel. My guess is, my guess is that this angel is either Gabriel or Michael, the two mighty angels that are named in the word. You will notice that he comes from heaven to the earth and has, first of all, the key to Hades. Now, here's my question for you. Where did the mighty angel get the key. Well, turn with me, stay there in Revelation 20, but turn back with me to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Revelation 1, verse 18. Remember, this is the chapter in which John witnesses the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Where did the angel get the key? It came directly from the Son of God, who has possession of those keys. You will notice also that this mighty angel has a great chain, and it's seemingly very easily the angel easily captures Satan and binds him with this chain and casts him into the pit of Hades for a thousand years. Now, Revelation chapter 20, verse 3 in 
The King James Version uses the word hell. However, uh, actually, the translated word is more accurately uh, Hades. Uh, well, actually, we see a bottomless pit. The, the great translation is abyss or pit or even Hades. So bear this in mind. The pit that we're talking about here is not hell itself. It is a holding place that's going to lead to hell. When a lost person dies, when an unsaved person dies, he or she does not go directly to hell, but rather to a place of hellish waiting, a place called Hades, a place that the Bible also terms the abyss or the pit. It is not pleasant. And in fact, the moment a lost person dies and sees this hellish place, they know that their eternity is indeed going to be spent in hell. They are headed for hell. But the wait takes place in a hellish place called Hades or the pit. And when the day comes that God judges the dead, and we will get to that part of the book of Revelation very soon, but when that day comes, Hades, the abyss, the pit will give up its residence and they will face God Almighty in the great white throne judgment. That is a judgment you and I will not be in, praise God. For every saved person, you will not be in the great white throne judgment. However, the lost person who is delivered out of Hades, who faces God, will account for their life of unforgiven sin. They will recount to God one by one those acts of wickedness before him. And then God will say, depart from me. And they will at that point, after the white throne judgment, be cast into hell along with the Antichrist and the false prophet. Hell has been described in God's word as eternal torment, eternal regret, eternal fire, as well as eternal darkness. Uh, it is not a place that any of us would even want to look into. Also, hell is described by the Lord as a place of gnashing of teeth. If you look at the Greek translation of that, basically what that points to, it is a place of eternal regret. Can you imagine the regret that a lost person would feel knowing that they had the opportunity over and over again to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and they rejected him and end up in hell? A place of eternal regret. Well, we'll look at that aspect of judgment more deeply next time we meet in a Revelation study. But Satan, at this point, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, he is bound. He is cast into Hades for 1,000 years. Now, during that 1,000 years on this earth, demonic activity is stopped. Satan is bound for 1,000 years, and the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns physically on this earth in a perfect way for that thousand-year period. It is called the millennium. That's on your sheet. It is called the millennium, which simply means a thousand years. Now, the word millennium is not in the Bible, but neither is missions or trinity. Those words are not in the Bible, but the Bible very plainly points to those words. But as Satan is taken out of the world, Jesus returns here to reign in a very perfect way. I do want you to remember the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
It is during this thousand year, this millennial reign of Christ, that the will of God is done perfectly on the earth as it is in heaven. God's will will be perfectly done in that millennial reign. Satan is absent. Satan is bound. He is cast away into the abyss, the pit, and Jesus is ruling. Now, Isaiah prophesies about this millennial reign of Jesus and the earthly peace that comes through this reign. If you'd like to turn with me, you can, but please do write this reference down. It's Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 10. Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 10. Here are the words of prophecy from the Old Testament about the millennium reign of Jesus on the earth. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den, two of the most poisonous snakes of that day. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. The millennial reign of Jesus, when there will be no animals killing one another, a child can play with a snake, the lion eats hay or grass as the ox, there is peace on this earth. Even in the animal kingdom, there is peace on the earth. Now, in this millennial period, Jesus reigning on the earth, Revelation 20 is very plain that he is surrounded by others who are on the thrones of leadership and blessing. Who are they? They is us. We are on the thrones of leadership and reigning with Jesus. Every believer Every person of faith out of the ages is going to reign with Jesus during this thousand years. Now, I want to explain tonight a fairly complicated biblical principle. So now I need you to put your concentration caps on. I want you to think about this. This is a subject that you're going to want to hear about because we're involved in it. This is about our resurrection to new life. When does the resurrection take place. Well, the Bible speaks of two resurrections. This is on your sheet. Two resurrections, the resurrection of the saved and the resurrection of the lost. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the saved. The second resurrection will be the resurrection of those who will finally be cast into hell as the lost. The second resurrection of the lost is going to take place after this 1,000-year reign of Jesus. But the resurrection of the saved takes place before the 1,000-year reign of Jesus. We will be resurrected to new life so that we may rule with him during this period of time of 1,000 years on this earth. Now, here's where we need to think. This first resurrection of all the saved of the ages takes place in three phases. 
It's very similar to uh, a harvest. Think of it this way. When a farmer in that day planted a crop, the first thing the farmer did when the cl- a crop was ripe was to begin the harvest by harvesting a very small portion, and that was called the first fruits. The first fruits, the very first little portion of a harvest. That little portion of the harvest would be taken to the temple and dedicated to God, thanking God for all of the harvest yet to come. Then the farmer would go home, and in the second phase, the farmer would harvest the entire crop. That's called the general harvest. Finally, in the third phase, the farmer would go back over the field. After all of the harvest is done, he'd go over the field and pick up what was left over, and that's called the gleanings. We see in the book of Ruth that Ruth was gleaning in a field. That means that the field had been harvested, and the farmer allowed others to come in and pick up what was left over, the gleanings. Three phases of harvest. Now, in terms of the resurrection of the saved, here's the way... The Bible explains it. Jesus Christ's resurrection dies on the cross, resurrected on the third day. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of resurrection. His resurrection represents before God all of the crop of the saved that is going to come. So that's the first phase of resurrection. Now, here's phase two, and here's where it might get just a little bit complicated. Phase two has really two segments in it, all right? Phase two has two segments in it. When it comes to the general harvest, the resurrection of God's people takes place in two segments. First, when Jesus raptures his church, when Jesus comes for his church, Prior to the great tribulation, he resurrects all the believers of the church age. And those Christians who are still living at the time of rapture, who are still walking the soil of this earth, those Christians will rise to meet Jesus in the air, along with all of those who have been resurrected from the grave, those believers of the church age who had passed on before the rapture. And, of course, the key passage here, I won't read it, but you need to read it if if this is uh, not familiar to you, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It tells you about that resurrection as the believers are raised from their graves and those who are still living at the time rise to meet Jesus in the air. Okay, well, now, what about the second segment? Who's that? When are the Old Testament saints resurrected? They're resurrected too. Although they lived prior to the physical life of Jesus, these are the faithful people to God over the ages. When are they resurrected? Well, there are several Old Testament passages that speak to the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. One key passage, write this down, is Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 13 and 14. Let me read them to you. Ezekiel 37, verses 13 and 14. This is what the prophet Ezekiel says about the resurrection of Old Testament saints. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land, 
Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. Now, notice a couple key statements in Ezekiel 37. First of all, God says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. When does that happen? It happened during the giving of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the parakletos. Here in the Old Testament, we hear that the Old Testament believers will receive that same spirit as the people of the church age. Then you will also notice it says, I will place you in your own land. Where is Jesus going to reign in this thousand-year period? In Jerusalem. So the believers of the Old Testament age are going to be placed in their own land with the Spirit of God in them that they might too be reigning with the Lord. Now, these passages tell us that indeed... Old Testament saints are going to be in this thousand-year period of reigning as well in their own land. Now, the time of resurrection of the Old Testament saints is not truly specific here, but we know this. They are going to be raised before the thousand-year period takes place. They are going to be in this general harvest of the saved who will be raised up to reign with Christ during that period of time. All right, so now we've gotten the uh, first fruits, Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead. Then we have the general harvest, which is the church age, the, the saints of Jesus raised from their graves. We also, in the general harvest, have the Old Testament saints raised to reign with Christ, now phase three. Finally, the people who come to Jesus during the great tribulation. The church is gone, the church age is closed. But they also are resurrected prior to the thousand-year period reign of Jesus. They also sit with him on the thrones of rulership. This group of Christians rising out of the great tribulation are the gleanings. They are, if you want to call them this, the leftovers. After the church age is closed, they're the final group of saved people from this earth. Jesus gathers them up. They're the gleanings. He's cleaning up. They're the last ones to be saved, and they too will be resurrected. So all of these groups are part of the first resurrection. Phase one, Jesus is raised as first fruits. Phase two, the church age, the Old Testament saints are raised as the general harvest. Phase three, great tribulation saints are raised, and all of them participate in this thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, brother, sister, you and I are part of this blessed and wonderful event, this family of God that reigns. Resurrection is to great joy. That's on your sheet, a resurrection to great joy. So Revelation teaches us that we will see earthly death if Jesus indeed tarries, but we will be with our Lord for all eternity. We will be there to see the marriage supper of the Lamb that we studied in Revelation 19. We will be there as Jesus rides forth as the general of the armies of heaven. You and I will be in those armies of heaven. We will be there to hug and to welcome the tribulation saints into glory. We will be there as Jesus reigns for a thousand years of perfection on this earth we will be there to meet those Old Testament saints who will be reigning with us. We will be there when all of God's people live in the new Jerusalem where sickness and mourning and tears and crying and pain are banished for all eternity. We will be there. 
That's the joy of believing in Christ. Now look at the last verse that we studied tonight, verse 6. Chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The Greek word for blessed is makarios. And it means happy beyond belief. Happy beyond being able to understand it. I think certainly we have known particular joys here. You, you enjoyed your 13th birthday. You enjoyed, as I did, getting my driver's license for the first time. You enjoyed your wedding day. You enjoyed your first child and your second child and however many came along. Uh, I understand that you truly enjoy the grandchildren as they come along. Uh, you in, perhaps enjoyed retirement, getting out of the rat race. Well, whatever we find joy in, let me tell you, we have only scratched the surface of what true joy is. Makarios, the joy of being saved and living with the Lord, that's the joy that Revelation describes as coming to us. However, it is a joy that only the saved can know. The unsaved cannot know this joy, and that's why our mission and our calling and our commission from the Lord is so very real tonight. Of course, you remember those familiar words from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God does not want one soul in hell. He did not create hell for one soul. His desire is that every person come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and live in that kingdom of God. Our commission... And our mission is to share that good news outside of these doors. Heaven's motto, and I believe that uh, it may be something like this, the more, the merrier. The Lord wants the entire family to be there with him. God wants all people to be saved. But I do remind you of this. It is indeed a limited time invitation. The time to share Christ, church, is today. It is now. There's not a day to waste. There's not a time to put off anything in the way of our mission. We do not have a day to waste in our mission. God forbid that we get to heaven and we're reminded that we did not witness to someone who is not there, someone who has been very important to us. So our, our dedication tonight is that we will commit our lives to reaching out with the love of Christ right now. The, the door is open, the time is now, and we are certainly witnesses to the fountainhead of life and joy and blessing and eternity. So it's not, it's not our money that makes us happy. It's not our stuff that makes us happy. It's, it's nothing to do with popularity or fame, but it's all about how we serve our Savior. That's what brings the enjoyment and the joy of living day by day is giving our life to Him. And tonight, if you are in this place and you have never come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or perhaps one of these days when this CD of this sermon is being played and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, in this moment you can simply say yes to Him. Say, yes, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And yes, Lord, I am sorry for my sin against you. I'm sorry for my life that has been lived against your will. But in that sorrow, Lord, I know there's nothing I can do of myself 
to gain forgiveness in the eyes of God. I can't pay for it. I can't earn it. I can't work for it. There's nothing I can do to be good enough to receive it. But your son, the perfect lamb of God, Jesus, died on a cross that through him I might be saved. Tonight I come to you and I accept you as my savior. I cast my sin upon you, the one who took it to the cross and paid that atoning death that I might be forgiven. If you've never made that decision, tonight this is your invitation and he is waiting for you. What good news that is. But ladies and gentlemen, there are so many outside of these doors who need that good news. My prayer, not just for you, but for me, is that we will be faithful to that message and that we will be faithful to take it outside where it is so desperately needed. God bless the church. God bless this church that we continue to do his will.